Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. March 2023. It's a bad time to be a bank. As interest rates spike and asset prices falter, especially tech stocks, crypto and the like, a number of financial institutions suddenly close their doors. Most you've never heard of. Silicon Valley Bank? Apparently that looked after the US venture capital industry, while Signature and First Republic did a lot of business with crypto. While their customers weren't happy, the impact on the real economy was pretty limited. One bank, though, was very important, a global name whose collapse had the possibility to spread systemic risk around the financial system, just as Lehman Brothers had done 15 years before. It was the first real test for a regulatory system that had been cobbled together after the great financial crisis. Can you guess who it was, Neil? Uh, well, I've got inside information, <laughs> which you can't beat, of okay, course. Okay, go on, go on, go on. And the answer is Credit Suisse. Yes, inside information, as always, completely correct. I suppose we should start by just saying what this isn't. This podcast isn't just about the story of Credit Suisse's collapse, although we'll obviously talk about that. But it's more about looking at the background to that collapse. Credit Suisse was, I think it's fair to say, one of the most scandal-prone banks... <laughs> That certainly I came across when I was a journalist. Yeah, uh, the extraordinary thing, looking or reviewing the line of scandals, yeah. is that it survived as long as it did. So, so somebody did some analysis where they looked at all the scandals that had been in since 2000. And in total, it had fines of $11.4 billion in the years between 2000 and its collapse, which was an average of $570 million a year. <laughs> Which is pretty pretty high cost of doing business when you think about it. It just goes to show that banking is a fantastically profitable business if they can afford to be fined <laughs> over $10 billion and still just, just survive. But of course, it can't last forever. And, uh, and Credit Suisse, a bit like a cat, the famous cat, ran through its nine lives. And the scandals really are at the heart of the story. Unlike the banks that all failed in 2008, Credit Suisse wasn't wildly undercapitalized, wasn't brought down by some huge losses in its balance sheet. So what we'll try and do, I think, is to figure out why a bank that came from this world, Switzerland, where it's all about being discreet and efficient and running your affairs prudently, how it ended up being such a complete mess. But first, I think we probably need to start with a bit of history. Let's go right back to the beginning. Is there much to be drawn from Credit Suisse's beginnings as a bank? Well, it's a commercial bank set up in the mid-19th century, like many across Europe. It's founded by a guy called Alfred Escher, who's a liberal politician, a typical Victorian bewhiskered dynamo who comes up with a wheeze to create a bank to fund Switzerland's railways. He models it on a French bank called the Crédit Mobilier, which had been launched a few years before and had made very large fortunes for the people who set it up. It's founded in 1856, floated on the stock market where it's backed by the wealthy bourgeois of Zurich. And after a few racy years, it settles down. By the end of the 19th century, it's basically a rather stuffy and conservative commercial bank catering to and owned by the Swiss upper classes. Joseph Ackerman was the chief executive of Credit Suisse in the 1990s and later went on to run Deutsche Bank. And he joined Credit Suisse in the 1970s, just as that era 
was really finally coming to an end. Credit Suisse became a, I would say, a very a conservative uh, bank, primarily for uh, the Swiss, uh, or maybe even more so for the Zurich establishment. And uh, it was strong in uh, private banking, wealth management, in commercial banking, but more uh, also with big corporates. And it, it was not so much to bank for the small retail clients at the time. That is so how it how it all started. What made Credit Suisse more than the sum of its slightly dull parts was, well, Switzerland, or more specifically, that country's neutrality and willingness to be a discreet money manager for the world's worried wealthy. Yes, worried wealthy is one way of putting it. (laughs) uh, All sorts of... uh people who were worried about being found out, I would say. I suppose what really kicks it off, though, is is the world wars, the steady increase in personal taxation. All that gives a huge boost to the kind of Swiss banking industry and also sets the stage for the first big scandal that shakes the bank. To see where Credit Suisse loses its first life, you need to go to the small border town of Chiasso on the Swiss-Italian border. Have you ever been to Chiasso? I'm afraid it's one of the places in the world that I've yet to visit. (laughs) Anyway, it's a sleepy place. It's got about 10,000 inhabitants, and it's amusingly described in news reports from the time as being within suitcase-carrying distance of the Italian border. And it's where Italy's rich had become used to parking their winnings beyond the taxman's grasp. The scandal happens because the manager of the Credit Suisse branch in Chiasso, who's a guy called Ernst Kurmeier, I think he gets a bit greedy. But well, hang well, maybe, on. Maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe he gets a bit entrepreneurial is yeah, a, more, a better way of putting it. Uh, you could say that, but he knows where all this money is coming from yeah. and he knows that it's illegal and he thinks... Why the hell should I play by the rules when none of these other people are? What appears to happen is that he comes up with a wheeze to attract more of this sort of Italian flight capital to his bank as opposed to going to all the others by the simple thing which bankers tend to do when they want to get more capital, which is to offer high rates of return to the depositors so that when they cross the border with their suitcases, they'll go to the Great Suisse branch rather than the... UBS branch down the road. I imagine they weren't the only bank in this rather attractive little town. No, they were not. I looked at at the Google Maps and it is literally sort of studded with banks. (laughs) (laughs) There's virtually nothing else. So there was quite a lot of competition for this uh, hot money. Yeah, yeah, because you literally potter across the border. The question then is, he's offering these high rates of return. How is he going to fund them? And his idea is to put all the money that he takes in to work in a Liechtenstein trust company called Texon Finanstalt, which is another, obviously, in Liechtenstein, an even more secretive tax haven. <laughs> so really nobody knows where it's gone. And then it's invested in all sorts of exciting investments. But there's basically a snag, which is his Liechtenstein pals can't actually generate the promised returns. And in the end, what happens? It's like our old friend Bernie Madoff. The whole oh, thing turns into absolutely the They're home offering... of Charles Ponzi, yeah. <laughs> or the origins of Charles Ponzi. If they are offering above market rates of interest, then they are taking above market rates of risk. And in the end, that will find you out. Yeah, yeah. That's the light motive running through this whole story. Anyway, of course, the thing turns into a Ponzi and Kermeyer's clients turn out to be the Patsies. And by the time the scandal breaks, he's lost nearly a billion dollars, which is a hell of a lot of money in, in I'm surpri- 1977. I'm surprised they didn't come for him. There are even concerns at the time that the losses might trigger a run 
on Credit Suisse as a whole. So, you know, this is a bit of a warning. This place is not being particularly well run. I suppose one of the things about the Chiasso affair is it has major consequences. People genuinely go to jail. Kurmeyer takes the full rap, says it was all my idea. No one else knew about it. Gets four and a half years in prison and a $6,000 fine, which is about $25,000 today. I think that most people would settle for that, given the, the amount of money he must have made. Oh, I don't know no, how much. Four years hard labour. And well, he be... didn't do it. He died of a heart attack about oh. three days after sentencing. Oh. Or who knows what happened. Anyway, <laughs> well, we'll, quite. We'll, we'll, we'll drift on from that. Anyway, the chief executive of Credit Suisse and several board members also resign because it's very shaming that they've been involved in this shambolic affair. And the Swiss public, of course, are shocked, shocked to find out that this sort of gambling is going on in one of their largest banks. <laughs> Just never occurred to them the possibility. <laughs> Joseph Ackerman, who was, uh, who was actually around at that time and he was looking for a job in banking, he, he recalls the backwash from the Chiasso affair. In my case, I just joined a year when it all happened. And after having finished my thesis at the university, and of course, uh, I tried to get in touch with all three banks and Credit Suisse made the most attractive offer. But when I then accepted that offer, I remember that my family was already happy because, uh, you know, Credit Suisse was suddenly perceived as a scandal bank. Somehow the lesson from all of this sort of gets lost or subsumed in a debate, a wider debate about the bank's strategy. Because Credit Suisse at the time, Piazza, is trying to decide where it goes next Growth has been slowing down. It's the 1970s, which means the post-war 30-year, the trente glorieurs, is over. And there's a, a worry that Credit Suisse may be outpaced by its main Swiss rivals, who are UBS and Swiss Bank Corporation. And also, it's still a big corporate bank. And those sort of firms are being disintermediated. As Sorry? Disintermediation means where large companies who traditionally took bank loans from banks like Credit Suisse decide in the end to fund themselves through the capital markets. So they issue shares or bonds. Obviously, you know, Credit Suisse traditionally hasn't done that sort of work. So the clear out after Chiasso, which leads to the board being the chief executive going, brings a new guy to the helm who has a plan, a man with a plan. And he's called Reiner Gutt. And he becomes chief executive in 1977 after Chiasso is in his mid-40s and the bank is sort of jumping a generation. Like his predecessors, he's Swiss, you know, upper middle class, brought up in the right neighbourhood. But instead of climbing the greasy pole in Switzerland, he's made his way on Wall Street, becoming a partner at the investment bank Lazard Frere. But, of course, they do things differently over there. Yes, <laughs> rather more decisively. Hmm. you know how you got to the top of the Swiss banking system until the 1970s? How did you get to the top of the Swiss banking system you before got, the You 19th? became an officer in the Swiss army. Oh, right. And you had to basically, and it's a, it's a reserve army. So you remember, they famously, they go around on bicycles. As long as you got a decent rank, you were regarded as officerable. The right chief stuff. Chief executive, right stuff. Okay. But then that all went away in the 70s, and it becomes much more like... Us. So Reiner Gutt becomes chief executive. He's a man with a plan. And here's, this is Philip Auger, is a former investment banker and an author who's written extensively about the financial industry. And this is what he had to say. Reiner Gutt is given the objective of broadening the business away from conventional activities, commercial banking, retail banking, wealth management, into a broad scale investment banking. And the first thing that uh, he did was to 
form a partnership with one of the big Wall Street banks, first Boston. And that took place in 1978. Interesting choice of bank. One of the banks that was uh, spun out as a result of the of the great crash of, of 1929, the introduction of the Glass-Steagall Act requiring deposit-taking banks not to participate in investment banking. Reasonable business, pretty racy all the way through, pretty racy all the way through. But during the 1980s, it developed a very interesting business um, in, in what was then a new field, the derivatives business, made lots of money throughout the 80s. So too did First Boston in the fast emerging junk bond business. And so this seemed to be going pretty well. So Goot's big idea was that investment banking income would be a new profit source, allowing the bank to grow beyond Switzerland's frontiers. Selling stocks and bonds would enable the bank to retain its relationship with global Swiss companies like Nestle, which were moving away from traditional bank lending. And all the fancy new financial products bankers were inventing might be interesting investment opportunities for its wealthy clients. Sounds pretty sensible to me. What do you think? It does. No, no, it does sound perfectly sensible. I mean, if your core business is being nibbled away by market forces, yep. there's no point in just lying back and enjoying what's left of it because uh, in the end you won't have a business. The risk of this sort of enterprise, though, is... If you think the lesson of Chiasso was that Credit Suisse wasn't really capable of managing a quite boring business like private banking very well, i.e. the branch managers were like the kind of the kind of mice going through the fridge while the cat was snoring away in uh, Zurich. They're now going into a business, Wall Street and the city of London, which is full of some real sharks who, yes, who are not, much harder to manage. They're not mice, they're sharks. Yeah, yeah they're sharks. Um, when they get to the fridge, there's very little left. The fridge, <laughs> it, the fridge gets eaten. It does require a completely different mindset. Mm. And the attitude of the people who succeed in this game mm. is that they can see small advantages for what they are proposing and they're generally small differences in very large sums yeah. and that makes the difference between success and failure in yeah. investment banking. So we now move into the freewheeling 1980s and it's a bit of a wild west time for investment banking. You remember that era. I'm afraid so. Here's Philip Auger again. They're in it at a period when the rewards in investment banking are absolutely astronomical. There's no things like deferred bonuses and bonus clawback in the event of malice. So there's a great temptation on the part of executives to make as much money as possible while they can and then quickly cash in and, and move on. So you get bad people coming through the bank at that time. Well, it's also a gold rush. Wall Street and the City of London are growing like crazy in the 1980s after a pretty difficult period for the much of the post-war era. I mean, it really comes roaring back, doesn't it? Yeah, the fuel for this, of course, is the American trade deficit helped by the rules on taxation of bank deposits, which spawned the Eurodollar market in London. Yeah. And also with, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan coming to power, there's just a kind of liberalising force sweeping through the world profits of the new Credit Suisse First Boston are rocketing in the 1980s. And I suppose that brings us to one of the, the great difficulties with investment banking is that, you know, it's that, it's that thing where everyone looks like a total genius in the boom times. And especially if you don't know the industry that well, 
mm. and you're being petitioned by your employees to give them more capital so they can make enormous profits, you get pretty quickly seduced by the idea that it's much more interesting than boring banking, do you think? Yeah, that's certainly true. And the other point is that the way these deals work mm. is that the few people who can do it are hugely well rewarded. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars for a year, a su successful year. Yeah. And if you are trying to get into this, then you have to recruit people yeah. on terms which are more attractive to them than in their current position at Goldman Sachs or wherever. Yeah. And you've also got to tell them, you know, you can do what you like, because that's part of the uh, appeal to them is to come in and uh, get to do things which they couldn't do elsewhere. Anyway, and they all seem to have brilliant ideas, these Wall Street types. I guess the Credit Suisse people don't even really notice all the risk that they're taking on quietly. They just assume this is great, free money. It's only at the end of the decade after the 1987 crash that they suddenly realise that actually there's a, there's a downside to all these sort of men in expensive suits running around signing bits of paper. Basically, First Boston then goes pretty much tits up in a few years and has to be rescued by Credit Suisse itself. The coup de grace is a scandal known as the burning bed affair. Do you know why it's called that? I do, but yeah. it's very entertaining. <laughs> but, uh, I'm sure you'll fill us in with the details. Well, only a couple. Basically, First Boston is doing leveraged buyouts. And one of the companies it does a big leveraged buyout with is called the Ohio Mattress Company. They lend all this money for the buyout, thinking that they'll be able to sell junk bonds to the investors to refinance it. And then the junk bond market collapses and they're left just with this huge loan to an insolvent mattress company. Yes. So good deal, guys. So first, Boston basically falls apart. And by 1990, Credit Suisse have to take it over. Well, there are two things here. One is the fact that this ought to, at this stage, be a bit of a lesson that they've been doing this for 10 years and they've ended up buying a US bulge bracket investment bank, which has gone bust. Yeah. And the second is they shouldn't even have been allowed to buy it anyway, because in those days, you still had a thing called the Glass-Steagall Act in America, which said the commercial bank wasn't allowed to own investment banks. But the Fed waived it because they realized that no one would ever buy First Boston. They thought it was better to break their own law than to allow First Boston to collapse with all the chaos it would cause. Yeah, I'm sure the fact that the money was going to come from a foreign institution yeah. never crossed their minds. Yeah. You'd have thought that at this stage, the Zurich bankers might start to think again. But as Philip Auger points out, what they did was simply to reach for the checkbook. Yes, it's quite remarkable that the two decisive steps on the part of uh, Credit Suisse, 1988 and 1990, occur at moments of weakness. The 1988 increase to 44% takes place through a failed derivatives trade. The 1990, they take control through a, a, by enlarging their stake, occurs in the so-called burning bed affair when a company called Ohio Mattress, uh, if you can believe it, when a, a, essentially a leveraged buyout went wrong and Credit Suisse had to step in. And they ended up actually owning, a, a, believe it or not, a, a, a bed company worth about $450 million. So those two episodes in the, in the space of two or three years could have been a, a warning signal. So by this stage, from dipping a toe into investment banking in the 1970s, Credit Suisse is now in pretty deep. Joseph Ackerman, who took over as CEO in the early 1990s, says he was always worried that Credit Suisse 
was fundamentally too small to shoulder the risks it was running on Wall Street. The asset management and the wealth management, although very successful, were probably somehow too small at the time to support an investment bank of a bulge bracket status. And uh, the retail banking in Switzerland is okay, it's profitable, but of course it's a relatively small market. So in, in that sense, the situation was uh, uh, unbalanced uh, within within credit space. And, and uh, you know, you had years of, of uh, great, uh, huge profits, but then you had uh, huge losses. Uh, it's up and down, so it's not unusual in, in investment banking, but uh, other banks can more easily put that aside and, and digest that and absorb that than a smaller bank can do. There's still arguably a chance to change tack, but the way Ackerman goes about this is he tries to rebalance the business away from investment banking by buying lots of other banks, <laughs> boring ones, like retail banks in Switzerland and Austria. He tries to buy Credit Anstalt of Austria. But basically his problem is Switzerland's too small. He does buy one Swiss bank, but the Austrians aren't interested. It doesn't sound to me to be an unreasonable strategy. The problem is and was that you either play in the high stakes game of investment banking or not. You can't just be halfway in, halfway out. I suppose my disagreement with it is I'm a, I'm a bit of a purist. I rather agree with Glass-Steagall. I don't think retail deposits should be used as sort of gambling chips in investment banking. I think we're saying then, much the same thing, oh, aren't we? Oh, good. I believe okay. so, yeah, for a change. Good. If you're betting with your own money, you tend to be a good deal more careful than if yes. you're betting with somebody else's. Yeah. Anyway, the thing about Ackerman's strategy which doesn't really work because you can never buy enough, is that basically Wall Street is in another boom and it's growing. The investment bank is growing too fast again. So you need to buy far more than he can ever find to buy. And that really leads to the next life which Credit Suisse loses, which is in 2000 when the dot-com bubble bursts. Because they become this sort of very successful West Coast. They're not only on Wall Street. They're now running a big investment banking operation out of San Francisco where they are doing all the IPOs of the big tech companies like Amazon in the 1990s. And it's an incredibly successful business for years and years. Then, of course, the dot-com crash comes. <laughs> and first, all the revenues dry up. And then the regulators turn up and start issuing fines for all sorts of misconduct, which has been going on. And here's Philip Auger. It's looking terrific until we get to the year 2000, when, of course, the bubble bursts. Heavy losses uh, are incurred by the investors in the dot-com companies. Credit Suisse's revenue dries up. But importantly, the dot-com crash reveals that various forms of malpractice, specifically the sponsors of of these uh, dot-com IPOs, of which Credit Suisse was a big one, had been effectively spinning the shares, giving favoured clients healthy allocations in the in the hottest issues in return for future business. This all unwinds in the early 2000s. The New York State Attorney General, a man called Elliot Spitzer, unpicks all this. Wall Street as a whole pays $1.4 billion of fines. Credit Suisse's share is a mere $200 million, but it's the second largest fine paid out of all by the Wall Street brokers. And again, you've got a, you know, a scandal in which Credit Suisse 
is is in it right up right up to the neck all a bit of a dream that soured and after that shock there's a bit of a fallow period not least because credit suisse is trying to digest another big investment bank expansion it's done in a what can only be described as a moment of madness. <laughs> in September 2000, it bought a US investment bank called Donaldson, Lufkin and Genret, sometimes known as DLJ, for $14 billion. <laughs> Needless to say, I'm not sure how much value is extracted from that activity. But basically, the next few years are really spent by Credit Suisse kind of trying to sort itself out, which means that it's not actually overexposed when the global financial crisis erupts in 2008. And it's really the bank's main crosstown rival, UBS, which is up to its neck in all the subprime loans and nonsense, which almost brings down half the financial system in that year. So after the crisis, having, you know, dodged a bullet, inevitably Credit Suisse draws the wrong conclusion and decides, oh, look, everyone else has dropped out of investment banking. We should uh, expand and grow our investment bank again because we are the last man standing. I think the only other bank which did that was Deutsche Bank was the other one in Europe. They were even worse. They were even worse. And the idea was that so many Europeans are pulling out of investment banking, there must be money in it. (laughs) It's a great piece of logic, isn't it? Fantastic. This is the era when the bank essentially is totally run by Wall Street. Because after the last of the old guard is a guy called Lucas Muhlemann. He leaves in 2002. Then the bank is run by traders for more than a decade. First of all, you've got a man called John Mack. He's a cigar-chomping US bond salesman known as Mack the Knife. Initially, he was running the bank in tandem with a German bond salesman called Ozzy Grubel. And then Mac gets kicked out of the side door and Grubel runs it on his own for a couple of years. And then he's replaced by an American derivative trader called Brady Dugan, who runs it until 2015. Credit Suisse is now completely run by Wall Street, but the scandals are now really picking up. And it's not just in the securities business either. But it's actually in this period that the losses are are there But the losses are accompanied by real reputational issues. Preparing for this, I started, I just thought, well, I'll make a list of Credit Suisse scandals. And I took out a piece of paper. I started writing them down. And I started out in quite big writing because I thought, well, you know, there won't be that many. But I mean, by the time I got to the bottom of the page, I was writing in, it was tiny, it was tiny writing and the lines were bunched together. And a lot of the big ones occur really after, after the crisis. Some of them go back to the past but you know you get half a billion dollars for sanctions busting you get 2.6 billion fine for helping us clients in tax evasion you get a three quarters of a billion dollar fine for money laundering over the one uh, mdb case the malaysian case you get sort of relatively trivial things but in in, in this context you know but money laundering is a, is at the heart of it tax evasion is at the heart of it all the way through you're you're seeing evidence of poor financial risk management poor reputational risk management a seeming loss of control on the part of the kind of risk function for what's going on out there in the Credit Suisse empire. Life 4 goes around this time and Credit Suisse is sailing into increasingly dangerous political waters. So in 2014, it has to pay $2.6 billion, which I think is what the largest single fine it gets, to settle charges that it helped US citizens evade taxes, which is perhaps the biggest ever hit to the principle of banking secrecy. 
that helped Swiss banks like Credit Suisse build up their private banking businesses in the first place. Two and a half billion is a lot of money. It's more than 6% of their market cap at the time. It's not just the money. We're talking about the period after 2008 when countries are going through this sort of austerity and they're getting increasingly irate about the idea that there are people who are being enabled to avoid paying their taxes by parking their money in funny locations like Zurich or Geneva. I'm not surprised they were cross because you are talking about very large sums. Mm. It's not just a cheating on taking your nanny with you to avoid the foreign exchange controls in the UK. We're talking about billions of dollars here. It starts to raise questions about the sustainability of this Swiss banking model, which is the idea that you take money with no questions asked and the state backs you up and says everything is always a complete secret and it, you know it's illegal to say anything about what's going on inside a bank. So Life 5 is just an avalanche of bad stuff and you can take your pick here. The crises run from sanction-busting cases involving Iran and Sudan in 2009, money laundering involving the Malaysian 1MDB scandal. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, it no. was very complicated and basically the the Malaysian government was essentially ripped off by their own bankers. And I think a few politicians as well. Well, I'm not surprised, but the, the <laughs> bankers were the ones that made really the real possible. killings. Yeah, yeah. Another leitmotif is also a bunch of tax evasion cases. So they're coming up in not only in America, but also in Germany in 2011 and Italy in 2016. Interesting, the tax evasion case in Italy in 2016, because that leads to a 110 million euro settlement. And that involved rooting 14 billion euros to offshore accounts in Bermuda and, and guess where? Liechtenstein. <laughs> So it doesn't seem as if they <laughs> learned all that many lessons no, from the Chiasso scandal. Of course, the difference in 2016 when the Italian case comes out is that the chief executive doesn't have to resign. Is no, because th- obviously he didn't accountability. know. He's shocked, yes. shocked to find out. Anyway, there's also another big scandal which always strikes me as being particularly problematic if you're running a private bank, which is a scandal involving a banker called Patrice Lescaudron, who's been stealing from clients, including a a Georgian billionaire called Bidzina Invarnishvili, (laughs) who's a man who has a private zoo in his own garden with zebras in it. (laughs) The way one does. You don't want to steal Uh, with people from people with zebras (laughs) in their garden. (laughs) It was the big cats that (laughs) might be uh, short of something to get their teeth into. You can't be fed to zebras, I think. By this stage, it's clear that employing overpriced Wall Street bankers isn't really getting the firm anywhere. The telling statistic from the Brady Dugan era, who's this derivatives salesman, is that over his time in charge, he collects 160 million Swiss francs, which is around the same amount in dollars, in pay and bonuses. And during the same period, Credit Suisse's share price declines by 70%. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So uh, what's what's the mot juste? Well, rewards for failure. It's not surprising that these people feel that their interests are rather superior to those of the shareholders they're supposed to serve. Anyway, in fact, having Wall Street people in charge seems to be adding to the problem and also pissing off the shareholders. I mean, one way to think about it is it's not just the Wall Street side that's out of control, but it's also the supposedly kind of discreet and prudent private banking side. It's not clear that the Wall Street people know anything about how to run a private bank. Well, I think it is quite clear. They (laughs) They had the first clue. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, private bank is far too dull for these masters of the universe. You know, yeah. it was slow and, you know, tedious. They'd far, far rather get their teeth into something, the red meat on Wall Street. So to try and solve this problem, Credit Suisse gets rid of the kind of Wall Street bosses who've been running it for a decade. First, they bring in a guy called Tijan Tiam, who's a guy from the Cote d'Ivoire. You must have come across him. Yep. And he used to run the Prudential. British insurance company. But while there's a sense that he has a plan, the whole thing ends in a complete fiasco. And Philip Orger explains. But then something seems to happen when they, you know, when they put on the Credit Suisse t-shirt. Mr. Tiam gets into this extraordinary row with the head of wealth management, Iqbal Khan. He's a neighbour. They have net properties overlooking Lake Zurich. Iqbal Khan annoys Mr. Tiam by some form of uh, property construction, which will spoil Mr. Tiam's view of Lake Zurich. They they fall out, I suppose neighbours do. But then uh, in an extraordinary episode, Tiam has private investigators shadowing Iqbal Khan as he goes through the streets of Zurich. Extraordinary. Clearly, you know, he, he, he has to go after that. Tiam, it should be said, rejects this analysis. Here he is, stoutly denying that he has done anything wrong. I did not order directly or indirectly that action. Do you feel like you need to rebuild trust with some of your constituents? Um, no, not from the, not from what I can see. But but you haven't had clients actually question by pulling out money. No, it hasn't had no, any impact like that. Zero impact. Zero impact. And then after him comes uh, Antonio Horta Azorio, another titan of the banking industry, a Portuguese whose previous job was running Lloyd's in the UK. Six years later, you get the chairman, former chairman of Lloyd's Banking Group with a fantastic reputation, really, really, really good banker. He decides that it's okay to ignore the COVID rules and go to the European football finals and Wimbledon in the midst of a, in the midst of a crisis. He has to go. It's, it's as though there's something in the water at Credit Suisse, which kind of drives people to extreme forms of behaviour. Very strange. So, bang goes life number six. Now the bank seems to be rudderless, scandal-prone, in the sights of governments and regulators, and also fairly unmanageable, which is not a great combination, I think. It's impressive, really, to have got <laughs> be wrong they're still all. around. Yeah. And well, I think at that stage, there was a bit, already a bit of a sense of incredulity that they were not in deeper trouble than they appeared to be. A bit. I mean, talk about accident prone. You'd have thought that uh, having had that sort of history that we've just described, they would be erring on the side of prudence, better systems and better communication so that the people at top had some idea what was going on inside the bank. Yeah. I think the real worry if you're running an organisation like this is you don't want your customers to start to think it's out of control because that's when real problems start. This is true, but the counter to that is if you're the top, at the top of one of these, mm. do you really want to know about what's happening in the engine room? Well, you need to know sometimes. Because does the captain of the Titanic want to know that an well, iceberg has just crushed through the hull? Well, you might say, well, the stokers can deal with that. No, <laughs> no, the plea of ignorance is used pretty ah. effectively in many of these cases. Yes, and I suppose that's right. The extent to which you actually actively don't want to know you what could, you really ought to know is part yeah, of the problem. You could put it as plausible deniability. <laughs> That's life number six. But now we come to lives seven and eight, which 
kind of heap the final ignominy on on Credit Suisse as an organisation because up till now it's done plenty of dodgy things but there's still this idea that it's a kind of a shrewd hard-nosed baddie <laughs> that gets into trouble for doing things which ought to be very lucrative for it but the next two lives involve things which just make it seem completely incompetent as if it doesn't know how to do its own business. Francis Coppola is an expert on financial risk who's written extensively about banking and economics. Here she is talking about Archegos, the first of those two scandals. Two things, really. One is that shareholders can be quite forgiving of cleaning up a mess from a long time ago. So they might forgive a penalty inflicted on a bank for something it did in, in the mid-orties. But actually, suffering a serious loss themselves now because of something the bank has done now is a very much different matter because they're saying, what do you think you are doing? And it is a fact that Credit Suisse has made some absolutely catastrophic investment decisions. I mean, Artigos, when he got involved in that, Bill Huang, who ran Artigos, was a convicted fraudster. You'd think, wouldn't you, that the investment managers at Credit Suisse might have been a little more cautious in their dealings with somebody who had actually been convicted of wire fraud but apparently not. Quick explanation of why Archegos is such a shambles. Basically, it's a family office. thing a bit like a hedge fund, but there's only one investor or a family investor. Anyway, it's a family office that goes down and it costs Credit Suisse around five and a half billion in losses. And Credit Suisse's role with it is, is doing the classic thing. It's, it's lending it money to invest in shares. And it's not the only firm to lose lots of money. Nomura, Morgan Stanley also take losses, but it's by far the biggest. And they were also the slowest to react. And the board barely seemed to know anything about the relationship until it's much too late. So it sort of stands up your thing that they just don't want to know very much about what's no, going on. Quite. And the other thing, which is really embarrassing from their perspective, is they lose five and a half billion. But the previous year, they had only made $17.5 million in fees from Archegos <laughs> running this position, which was going to cost them $5.5 billion. Not quite an attractive risk-reward ratio, and, is it? And the 55 was actually less than the real full risk they were running. They were running a risk that could have left them with losses somewhere between 10 and $20 billion. But the other scandal is in many ways even more embarrassing, which is our old friend's Greensill. Oh, yes. This defies belief, really. But the beauty of Greensill is that (laughs) Greensill basically is running this completely implausible nonsense business. Credit Suisse has essentially sold the idea to its own private customers that they should effectively provide Greensill with billions of dollars of short-term financing that he can then lend on to his clients, including people like Mr. Liberty Steele, who, by the way, is still around before you say anything too disobliging around. (laughs) (laughs) The Greensill starred our very own Prime Minister at the time. The great Dave. Dave Cameron. And uh, it was quite clear then and now that he had no idea what he was doing but perhaps that would apply to his premiership as well, but that's probably beyond the scope of this volume. Yeah. Anyway, so once again, huge losses, egg all over the place. Nobody seems to know what the hell was going on. And the customers are left in a situation where they lose their shirts. So we're now in the autumn of 2022, and the company has used up eight of its nine lives. The management, finally, they've realised that something really quite bad is happening. (laughs) 
They put in new management yet again, announced they're going to clean up the investment bank, stop doing dodgy stuff. It was a good sign when people are saying, we're just going to be more honest in future. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> we're bankers. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> and generally clean up their act. But it's just too late. In the spring, everything comes together in one horrible rush. Here, according to Joseph Ackerman, by the end, they'd sort of grasped what was wrong, but they didn't have any time to do anything about it. The share price was sliding, and the clients who, for years, had sort of stuck to the bank like glue were suddenly jostling to pull their money out. Even if everyone tries to do the best, and and I would say the the final team probably tried very hard to do the right things, but it was finished. Confidence uh, had gone, and, and, and if you once lose uh, the confidence of investors, confidence of clients, you cannot do a lot to change that. And then on top of that, they had, a, in my view, disastrous communication policy. I mean, almost for years, they talked about things, but they never made it very clear to investors and to financial market what they really want to do and, and what, what uh, the results of all of that, the, the strategic moves will be. So, so in that sense, they created uh, one uncertainty after the other coming from different people, coming from different strategic approaches, coming from the scandals, which were hard to, uh, to explain and to understand. And so this combination led to the situation where in the social media, a lot of rumors and speculation were flooding around. And in today's world of digitization, you can, within a click, you transfer your, your funds or your portfolio from one bank to the other. In, in that sense, uh, they were, at the end, also a victim of new technology. And so that's the end of Credit Suisse. It's the and, ninth life. Like well, the cat. yes. <laughs> of course, the, uh, the catalyst for the cat here ah, is that you can withdraw your billions instantly nowadays, yep. whereas you had to go along with your suitcase before. And well, you sent your servant to, along with your This is a private to, bank. Well, I hope you didn't send your servant along. Yes, he might, he not, might, he might come back. Um, <laughs> either way... in your carriage outside. Either <laughs> way, you can do it electronically yep. in almost instantaneously with almost unlimited amounts of money. Yep. And so as the Silicon Valley Bank discovered a run which might have been slow in the past could take place almost in seconds yeah. today. Yeah. Once a bank loses the confidence of its depositors, those depositors can all be gone before the close of the day. And you also have another thing which I think people people talk about both in the context of SVB and of Credit Suisse, which is this idea that social media kind of amplifies the risk of a run because you start to get people hinting and talking about Credit Suisse on Facebook or Twitter saying that it's doomed and basically this feeds on itself. It's worth noting, incidentally, that Credit Suisse was, by banking standards, extremely well capitalised. Yes. Its capital reserves were a, were a long way above the minimum required by the rules. Yeah, well, the Swiss central bank was quite tough. And this, which is currently the the yardstick by which banks across the world are judged, turned out to be no protection at all. Yes, I agree. And there's also a bit of a, there's a sort of final farce, the kind of last moment when the whole thing collapses, when the share price collapses and the Swiss national banks step in to 
force it to be taken over by UBS for 3 billion Swiss francs. There's an interview with the Saudi National Bank. You might wonder why the Saudi National Bank has such big shareholders in Credit Suisse. And the answer is, in the kind of capital raisings they did towards the end, they were just taking money in from increasingly implausible sources. And the Saudi National Bank had ended up with 10% of the thing. Not, I think, because they wanted particularly to be a shareholder in Credit Suisse, but because, weirdly, there was this plan to spin off the investment bank, what was left of it, and they kind of fancied being part of that. The chairman of the Saudi National Bank, which owns 10%, was asked, will you put in any more money? And he said no, which, of course, caused a panic. Well, but many was... people think that he said no because the Saudi bank had a rule that they couldn't own more than 10% of, uh, or they'd hit some sort of limit on what they could own. But effectively, so low was confidence in Credit Suisse that when the sort of sugar daddy Saudi shareholder wouldn't step in under any circumstances and put more money in, the whole thing fell to bits. It was the last straw, really, it was the last wasn't straw. it? Or the last cat, as the... <laughs> In this case, yeah. we've got to stick, stick to our metaphors <laughs> and not be distracted. So Credit Suisse has failed after years of digging itself into a Wall Street-shaped hole. Next time we'll discuss whether the story could have turned out differently or was bad behaviour just baked into the Credit Suisse DNA. We'll look at some of the scandals, especially money laundering, and where does the failure leave Swiss banking? <laughs> That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.